Hello, and welcome to Raising Health, where we explore the challenges and opportunities facing entrepreneurs who are building the future of health. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode is with Josh Clemente, co-founder and president of Levels. He is joined by Vijay Pandey, founding general partner, and Daisy Wolf, investment partner of A16Z Bio and Health. Together, they talk about how wearables can be used to track health. Simpler metrics like heart rate and glucose now, but potentially much more complex metrics and molecules in the future. Josh compares this tracking to caring for any complex machine, where problems can be measured in advance of failure. You know, when you have a complex machine, think about your Airbus A350, like a passenger aircraft. That complex machine, there's a lot going on, and we cannot tolerate failure, right? Failure is life and death. We do not, in, under any circumstances, wait to measure the operating conditions of the Airbus A350 until it has failed and fallen out of the sky. And what he was telling me is that that is how you should conduct your healthcare strategy. Josh also talks about the future of wearable tech and how AI could transform both the technology and how the user interacts with the technology. It's early. You can tell it's early. But that is, I think, the that's the archetype for for what is most exciting about the AI revolution. It's like we've always had the computational capability. We've really had the sensing capabilities. We just haven't yet merge them into a wearable platform, but we haven't had the ability to simplify that into something that is useful for the everyday person. You're listening to Raising Health from A16Z Bio and Health. Hey, Josh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Super excited to chat with the two of you and I uh, look forward to getting into it. Perhaps a natural place to start is that, uh, you know, you're an engineer at SpaceX and Hyperloop One. Uh, before you became uh, founder of a biosensor company and then founded Levels. Can you talk us through that path? That's probably not the most common path towards going into metabolic health. For me, SpaceX was a super formative place. I went to school for mechanical engineering, but I like to say I became an engineer at SpaceX because it's a whole different thing uh, from undergrad studies when you're actually working under the under the clock, trying to put things in orbit. It was early days and they didn't really have the... You know, they hadn't yet earned the status to have all the best engineering candidates in the world trying to get in. So while I was there, I, I got a chance to do a ton of interesting stuff. I think most formative for me was when I got to be one of the first on the human life support system. So we were going from like just shipping an empty box or a full box up to the International Space Station, just sort of like a crate in space to now we need to put human beings inside this thing, and keep them alive. I started to get really interested in just making an impact in people's lives um, on a on a more sort of everyday general population scale. That got me kind of thinking, well, SpaceX is amazing. It's been a huge, you know, great ride here, but Hyperloop is doing this really fascinating thing with uh, high-speed transportation. So maybe I'll just like apply myself over there. Um, that seems like it could it could really move the needle for everyday people. Went over there, but you know, really the the spider had already bitten me, so to speak, and I was <laughs> I was starting to go down the rabbit hole of healthcare by the time I got to Hyperloop, and that's when I ultimately ultimately sort of departed to to do my own thing. So um, that's kind of the big picture, but happy to get into the details. So, Josh, you know, you, you're you're working at these uh, amazing engineering companies. How does that end uh, end up getting you to levels? Like, how do you end up sort of thinking about applying engineering in this new case? So, while I was at SpaceX, you know, physical health, sports have always been a, a, a an important thing to kind of maintaining my mental health. I didn't have a sports outlet. Um, so I started to train, uh, I became a CrossFit trainer and really cared a lot about physical fitness because for me, that was, um, physical fitness is a synonym with health, uh, at, at least in my, in my prior life. 
SpaceX for me meant you know, I didn't take a weekend off for multiple years in a row. You're just kind of always grinding, sleeping about five hours a night, sometimes sleeping at work. Um, so it's a combination of both pushing myself uh, to be physically fit and as well as ex excelling at work, which kind of created this tornado of health consequences that caught up to me about five years in. And at that five-year point, I was simultaneously working on the human life support system. We were developing the breathing apparatus, so delivering oxygen into the spacecraft. Um, and you got to like control the oxygen concentration. You don't want it to be flammable in there. You also can't go so low that you know the crew are, are hypoxic. While I was working on that, we had this, this sort of scenario we had to plan for where imagine that the oxygen system malfunctions and it injects a lot more oxygen into the cabin. And so the partial pressure goes up. Interestingly, although we all think of oxygen as like purely health beneficial, it's, it's super reactive. And in that scenario, you can actually induce seizures and even death because of all the reactivity in the brain of that high oxygen concentration. So I was thinking about this problem and I, I was just researching, you know, what are the effects of high oxygen concentrations? And that's when I came across some research from Dom Diagostino, who's a metabolic health researcher at the University of South Florida. He's also a neuroscientist. And there was one study that I, I will never forget reading this because it was my very first, it was the first moment that kicked this entire thing off. And essentially Dom had replicated this exact uh, circumstance for rats. So he put them into a high pressure, high oxygen environment and showed that seizure would be induced in about 20 minutes. He then put them into a ketogenic state using exogenous ketones and then reintroduced them to the same environment. And the rats survived between five and 12 times longer before having a seizure or experiencing you know, other detrimental consequences. And that to me like blew my mind. It, it was the first time I had ever heard of a macronutrient, literally a calorie ingested, changing, essentially inducing like superpowers on this creature. And um, I had always been a calorie as a calorie type of person. I, I had never you know, considered the differences between those sorts of, of uh, macronutrients. And, and so that was one thing. And then the second thing was we were doing a lot of fault detection, isolation and recovery, which is essentially, you know, again, sim similar concept, but something breaks on the vehicle, the spacecraft in this case, uh, you need to figure out how to fail safe it and then recover the full function. And I just recall sitting at this console with literally thousands of data channels coming from the spacecraft, uh, everything from to, to the nth decimal place, the pressure in the vehicle, the flow rate, how much oxygen you have in the tanks. And there were zero data channels on my console from the humans giving a real-time health output for them. That, that basically united into like a moment that really clicked and I, and I um, you know, became obsessed <laughs> with, with adding uh, what I would call like read-write to the human body. Amazing. You want to connect the dots to, to levels? Like you start with the read, is that kind of the thinking? Yes. One of the first things I started thinking of, you know, after that point was what could I measure to understand my health state right now? And what are the, like the most tangible or highest leverage biomarkers that would indicate for me what, you know, the data channels for the spacecraft are like, this is the health state of me. And, um, the, one of the, one of the earliest that I came across, and unfortunately the only one that you can measure continuously is blood glucose. So um, I came across continuous glucose monitors. They had actually just been approved by uh, CMS in like 2017, I believe, for reimbursal. So they had really just arrived on, on the US healthcare scene that year or around that time. And so I, I was instantly like, okay, this is awesome. You can get like a closed loop data channel from your body about this important marker, right? Glucose is the primary energy molecule in the body. So I wanted to get one and I, <laughs> and I went to my doctor and I had mentioned 
you know, a few minutes ago that I was also like burning the candle in -hmm. all directions and was extraordinarily unwell feeling. So I I was physically very fit, actually the, the fittest I had ever been at that time. But every day my lived experience was it feels like I have a terminal illness. You know, I had no energy. I would have these sort of crash episodes where I would just need to like sit down or I'd want to like crawl under my desk and disappear. I'd get really irritable, wow. cold, shaky, sweat. So um, so all that, you know, this is all happening simultaneously. And I, and I asked my doctor for a CGM. I was very excited. And I said, uh, this, this tech is gonna, it's like really exciting. I can read, you know, into the, the blood sugar control, like sort of the fuel source of my body. And I'm really excited about that. Like, can you give me a script? And he, he really, condemned that request in in pretty serious terms. Condemn is a very strong word. What do you mean condemned it? He essentially implied that I was um I was making light of a tool that was only f- intended for and and really should only be used for not just someone with a disease but an uncontrolled disease and that to even ask for a technology like this is both a combination of privilege and maybe you could call it hypochondria and mm. to to misuse a tool like that is uh, is fundamentally a misuse and a violation of people who need that technology. And I found the argument extremely unconvincing and I kind of explained why I was interested in this and and how his rationale made no sense. And specifically it's that, you know, when you have a complex machine, think about your Airbus A350 like a passenger aircraft. That complex machine, there's a lot going on and we cannot tolerate failure, right? Failure is life and death. We do not, in, under any circumstances, wait to measure the operating conditions of the Airbus A350 until it has failed and fallen out of the sky. And what he was telling me is that that is how you should conduct your healthcare strategy. And I, and I just simply told him, like, you are wrong, and you will one day change your opinion on this. Well, yeah, you make a really interesting point, and like the way you're describing it, you're describing it less of a. I, w- I was tempted to say healthcare, but like let's say sick care device, you know, healthcare as sick care device, and almost more like a consumer device. Uh, I mean, is, uh, how do you see it? Yeah. So this is, I think this is the crux question right now. And I, I think that the, actually the, maybe the most interesting part about the question is the fact that we have a distinction between those two categories. You know, we have this very bright line between consumer products and healthcare products. And, you know, for sure today, wearables are dominated by consumer use, right? I mean, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of people have a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or, or what have you. Um, I think for healthcare to work in a preventative way, we we have to deliberately blur those lines. I'll also say that I think the the sort of concept of healthcare devices right now is oriented around explicitly managing disease. Like you said, it's it's sick care. And in my conversation with that that first doctor I spoke to about it is is a prime example. But you know we have wearables today that. I would argue are absolutely healthcare devices. They just aren't managing a disease until we have that that wearable data stream, like in the context of an ex- extraordinarily educational, informative, like delightful, futuristic experience. It will never catch on. It won't change any lives. Josh, we're in the pretty early days of wearables right now, and I think anyone who's ever worn a Levels can attest that it's a, a pretty magical experience to be able to see what's going on in your body in real time. And we'll get into blood glucose in a second and all of the effects of that. But I'm curious what you think wearable technology looks like 20 years from now. 20 years from now, we will have continuous awareness of our own health. Like we will just always understand our health state. So I'll start there. Like that is what wearables will be driving towards. And I think their daily choices will be tailored directly toward the the most 
relevant markers and and sort of inputs that are driving your health state personally like you n of one daisy you know will have a different set of markers that you pay close attention to than than i will we will probably just have like sort of a conversational interface with the model itself um, that is predicting what's most important what's most relevant to you and sort of surfacing the major takeaways uh, that that you need to pay attention to. Totally. It feels like once we are monitoring dozens of biomarkers at once and then layer on AI algorithms to detect what's happening, you know, our wearables are going to be able to tell us that we're sick or something's wrong before a human even feels it. And probably, I mean, definitely before a, a doctor can run all of their tests and sense this. So I'm curious, what are the most exciting things happening in AI as it pertains to wearables? Well, I, I think many of us probably thought that AI was going to take a different direction and and have this sort of impenetrable, like binary capabilities that you needed to be like a super genius, uh, you know, software engineer to be able to take take advantage of. But the fact that the first thing we're seeing in this in this like last year's AI you know, breakthrough is is really conversational and again, human interface to complexity. I think that is the most interesting thing that's happening in wearables is the very earliest confluence between really simple and I think sophistication agnostic. Now, if you think about every wearable channel that's available, heart rate, heart rate variability, step count, uh, maybe pulse ox, we've got some like skin impedance that people are kind of relating to stress. And then you've got continuous glucose. Combine all of those, and they're, they amount to basically like a bunch of superficial metrics and then glucose. This is going to change really fast. So I think it's so crucial that this sort of simplification has, has arrived. And what we're going to see over the next few months, I think, is kind of the early integrations of, of that capacity. And, and Whoop, you know, Whoop rolled out an AI coach, for example, right? So you can like query, you can ask questions about you know, why is my, my recovery this way? Or why did I, you know, why did I see such a really high strain on that workout, which I hadn't seen previously? And, you know, it's, it's early, you can tell it's early, but that is, I think the, that's the archetype for, for what is most exciting about the AI revolution. It's like, we've always had the computational capability. We've really had the sensing capabilities. We just haven't yet merged them into a wearable platform but we haven't had the ability to simplify that into something that is useful for the everyday person. Josh, for those who don't know, do you just want to explain like how a continuous glucose monitor works and then, you know, what the future might look like where we are monitoring a lot of biomarkers at once? Yeah, so a, a continuous glucose monitor is really interesting because the, the technology only exists because of the symptom care industry, right? Um, so people with diabetes have a, for one reason or another, they have an inability to control blood sugar levels. Blood sugar is uh, the critical fuel for our bodies. Uh, the vast majority of us are running on the energy that is available in the glucose molecule. So your cells take it in, break it down, make it, make energy from it. When you have diabetes, the molecule that allows your cells to pull the glucose in, which is called insulin, either is not produced, which is called type one diabetes, or you your cells have stopped responding to it, which is typically called type type two diabetes. In any case. When blood sugar gets higher and higher, it starts to, similar to that sort of oxygen hyperreactivity I was describing, glucose is very reactive as well. And uh, you start to get too much reactivity. It starts to stick to proteins. It starts to you know stick to the stuff it's not supposed to stick to, interfering with regular biological processes and, and systems start to fail. So the nervous system, you get neuropathy, um, you get the vasculature starts to become sort of corroded and damaged by the, uh, the extra sugar in the blood. 
on and on and on. This starts to lead to comorbidities like heart disease, stroke, uh, Alzheimer's diabetes, or Alzheimer's disease is being called type three diabetes by by certain medical professionals. You know, there's just these this massive downstream compounding effect from that runaway uh, situation. So, continuous glucose monitors are a very simple electrochemical sensor, which essentially has an enzyme on it, which is just a molecule that it only identifies one target and it breaks that target down. So maybe that's a little too in the weeds, but the point is, is like, it's a chemical sensor that can only really detect uh, glucose molecules. So that platform is not extensible to measuring many molecules. It's a, it's sort of a, an explicitly glucose detecting sensor platform. Um, and what's really exciting to me is that in the labs and in, um, in, in a lot of companies that are working really hard on R&D, we've seen some really cool technologies that are not selective only for a single molecule. They are explicitly being developed for multi-molecule platform-based scalable detection. And these have been used to measure in, you know, in the lab, uh, not just glucose, but lactate, ketones, um, cortisol, some have even targeted additional hormones. Some are being developed for drug detection. And so they have to sort of be open-ended in the sense that they must be able to expand into even further, even more molecules in the future. Well, and one of the things I think that's, uh, I think, really important to underline is that people's reaction to different foods can be quite different, right? The classic example people use is uh, people may think brown rice is good for you and ice cream is bad. But I am one of the lucky ones for whom ice cream is actually just fine and brown rice, unfortunately, my glucose spikes. So I try to stay away from rice if I can, and uh, I'm delighted to have ice cream in, in moderation. So, and I think that's the thing that's always crazy about diet, right? Like you, you see, there's like ten different diets, and people claim these crazy things. Uh, but it, you know, I guess if you don't know this about yourself, you, you're going to have to do trial and error again, right? And just try something and see if it works. And that's like a very, very slow, uh, error-prone way to figure out the right health. Totally. And, you know, there, there was a really fascinating study, again, right around the time that I was getting really interested in this. It was from the Weizmann Institute. They essentially took 700 or 800 people without diabetes and put CGMs on them. And that was kind of like the first and largest of its kind trial at that point. And they showed that two people who ate the exact same two foods, in this case, it was like a whole wheat cookie and a banana. Those two people had equal and opposite blood sugar responses to those two foods, right? So one person had a huge spike from the banana and stayed flat on the cookie. The other person had the exact opposite response. And, you know, that, that implies a bunch of different things. It's like, well, is it genetics? Like, are the, is it microbiome? What, what is it? And I, I think the answer is a, a fluid and multivariable context. So some of it is genetic. Some of it is how well one person slept last night. Some of it has to do with the microbiomic differences and what who eats like more fruits versus more grains. Um, but at the end of the day, none of those things, with the exception of genes and with epigenetics that may also not be fixed, are permanent, right? Um, so for example, when somebody is eating a certain way while they're, while they're living a very active, healthy lifestyle, sleeping eight hours a day, um, not super stressed versus maybe they have their first child and now they're up all night with a, you know, and their, their sort of their exercise routine falls off. Well, that context entirely transitions, right? And, and you're sort of scraping in a meal whenever you can. Um, and that's why it's super powerful, not just to understand that each of us is different and we need targeted solutions for us, us specifically, but also that context shifts and, and is kind of on in a constant way, like adjusting to the seasons of life. When I've had uh, a CGM on, it was almost like a video game. Like I want to try this. I want to try that. 
And then it's it's very easy to like, okay, well, I better slow down on that or like, oh, this is actually not a problem. So for me, like I said, I, I was really interested in this almost from a theoretical position. And then I was physically, like I said, quite fit, but felt terrible every single day. And when I put that sensor on, <laughs> since that time, there is nothing about my lifestyle that has remained the same. Everything has been fully renovated. Like I said, I was sort of a calorie as a calorie kind of absolutist, right? So all calories are the same. In a thermodynamic sense. In a thermodynamic sense. Um, but that's not the question you should be asking. The question is, are all macronutrients the same? Because macronutrients carry the calories. And the fact is, mac all macronutrients are not the same. And I did not ever have that sophisticated uh, realization until I put a CGM on. And at the time, I was doing a lot of kind of gym bro science type living. So I, I was carb loading and I was glycogen replenishing after every meal. And so I'd be eating literally like I would be shoveling in 300 grams of pasta right after every workout. I would be drinking this extremely carb loaded uh, shake before my, before my exercise to like fuel me up. And doing all these things that are sort of modeled after the elite athlete who's training eight hours a day, because my assumption is whatever they're doing, they're the peak peak fitness specimen. So I should just copy and paste. Well, no, I'm sitting at my desk for most days of the most hours of the day. And I'm working out for one hour and I was way, way overcompensating. And so I actually was, when I put a CGM on, showed this to several doctors since, so this is not just a self-diagnosis, but I was definitely pre-diabetic. So, you know, I ended up shifting to a high protein, moderate fat, low carb diet, which is where I feel best. My blood sugar control is significantly better. And then there are many other things that I've changed. Uh, one, one is my sleep. I, I never really thought that sleep was a big deal. And once I saw the difference between an eight-hour night of sleep and a four-hour night of sleep in my blood sugar, just waking up, I would be in this elevated state and every response to every food I put in my mouth was going to be uh, exacerbated. I started to really prioritize sleep. That led to the effects of alcohol on sleep, the effects of late exercise. And so if I instead shift my morning workouts and go to and prioritize sleep, eat early uh, right after work and prioritize sleep, the next day is just dramatically better. And I don't have this crazy oscillations, these energy issues, the irritability, and potentially the consequences of what could ultimately evolve into a, a real blood sugar issue, prediabetes or worse. So those are the maybe the big categories. I agree with that. I, I used to be a biohacker who didn't hack. Like I would wear all the devices and they'd be like, you're eating too much sugar. You should have more steps in your day. And I would kind of just disregard the advice. And, and recently I started hacking and I realized not only do you feel better when you sleep, but the quality of your sleep goes up so much by exercising and eating right. And like you get more into REM and more into deep sleep. Take us through a day in the life of Josh. What do you do for your own health? The first thing I do is wake up and I try to put my phone across the room from me. And that gives me the, the few seconds I need to not just like grab it and log into a social media app. So my goal is to, is to not have phone time before I have exercised. I usually have a cup of coffee. Huberman would be upset, but I have one well within 90 minutes of waking up. It's like me too. usually within 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm the person that goes to sleep. And the reason I fall asleep is because I'm like, the faster I sleep, the sooner I get coffee. So I wake up, have coffee, and then um, head to the gym. I, I tend to do, right now I'm focusing on rebuilding some strength that I kind of ran off. I was, I was doing a lot of cardio workouts for the last few years. Head into work. One huge unlock for me has been shifting to a slightly worse experience, but much better overall, which is taking my Zoom calls from my phone. So I, I get somewhere between 15 and 20,000 steps a day now, like on a day that's packed with calls when I previously would get like literally 2000. And that has been like such a huge impact on my quality of life and my, my satisfaction at the end of a, of a day like that. 
so yeah, I come kind of flip between like that sort of manager day versus a maker day, which is when I get to like, kind of dig into some of our exciting, like future roadmap stuff. And, and then I try to, you know, get home around seven, eat right away. And I try not to eat anything after seven 30. And I, like I said, I, I rarely work out in the evenings now. And that's so I can, you know, between the two of those meal timing and exercise timing, I, I typically sleep really well and can kind of reset the next day. Yeah. Any, any supplements or any, anything, uh, that style? Yeah. So in the fall and winter, I, I supplement vitamin D year round. I, I take creatine. I think it's, um, I think it's one of the freebies in, in life. So I recommend creatine to anyone. When do you like to, what time of day do you like to take it? <laughs> there we go. Because <laughs> I've, I've heard creatine and, and caffeine knock each other out. So I used to take it in the morning before the workout and now I've been taking it around, actually around now. You and I have heard the same thing. So I, uh, I will have my coffee in the morning and then I will, after my workout, I eat, basically I eat the same thing every single day for breakfast and it's non-fat Greek yogurt, chia seeds, a little almond butter, some protein powder and creatine mixed in. And maybe I'll throw some, some blueberries or raspberries in there. And I just, I love it. It's so delicious. And that's how I get my creatine. in. so I, I do take it separate from my coffee and then I'll have like a, a second coffee before, always before 2 PM, but usually around noon. Nice. And that's it. Just the creatine. Yeah. Creatine, vitamin D, um, make sure I'm being honest. Oh, magnesium. Okay. So I, I do supplement magnesium. I've, I have no, it's interesting. I actually have not found the, the perfect dose, but I will cycle magnesium on and off because I find that when I first start taking it again, it has a huge effect on my, on my sleep in particular favorable, but it starts to taper off. And I wonder if it even like, I, I have had some, some sense that I've overdone it and maybe it has some like rebound effect in the other direction. So I, I kind of like cycle it over the course of months. To come back full circle, you know, this future that you're describing, where we can measure everything, I guess, then we could even know, even supplement-wise and whatever, you know, like what we're doing. Otherwise, I kind of feel like I'm we're flying so blind, you know, like at night with no headlights, no GPS. It's to be nice to know kind of how we're going, then we can actually do something about it. Exactly. You know, I think that there is such a broad spectrum of ways that that this sort of data can be used. Um, and when you have the ability to scalably detect molecules in the, in the body, they, they can be, you know, those molecules that are leading and lagging indicators of how your body is functioning, or they can be external molecules that you're trying to hit a therapeutic window for magnesium or, or for, um, cancer treatment or for sepsis treatment, right? You can do the same thing for drugs, both those that are necessary for serious diseases or just caffeine, nicotine, you know, just an infusion to the right amount. And you can also do early warning detection of a heart attack. You can, you can of course be monitoring signs of fertility. You know, men are having a testosterone crisis right now. Women, PCOS, uh, which is an insulin resistance related infertility issue is sort of like the leading cause of infertility today. The underlying markers are there. They can be measured. And I think, uh, you know, we're, we're not yet at the point where we've unlocked the real, the real beauty of, of wearables in a consumerized healthcare context. But these are the examples that I think are going to be, we'll just be like constantly experiencing in the future. Can't wait. Um, hopefully get there as soon as possible. Uh, Josh, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, VJ. Thank you, Daisy. Super fun. Thank you for listening to Raising Health. Raising Health is hosted and produced by me, Chris Tatiosian, And me, Olivia Webb. With the help of the bio and health team at A16Z. The show is edited by Phil Hegseth. If you want to suggest topics for future shows, you can reach us at raisinghealth at a16z.com. Finally, please rate and subscribe to our show. The content here is for informational purposes only. 
should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com slash disclosures.